To my right, students stand in a long line on the red brick surrounding the old well, waiting for a sip and good luck on the first day of classes. Beyond them, the grounds are dotted with old growth trees, low bushes, and a Confederate statue facing north. My mind tosses up images from last night like dark, confusing confetti. I want to tell Alice what I witnessed, but would she believe I saw a golden-eyed boy who uses magic to hypnotize students and a girl who carries a bow and arrow in her back pocket? What a way to set a scene. And that scene is right here on the UNC campus. This is Southern Futures. I'm your host, Melody Hunter-Pillion, with the Center for the Study of the American South. You just heard the voices of UNC Chapel Hill students reading from the New York Times best-selling novel, Legend Born, with a plot set on the UNC campus in Chapel Hill. This new young adult fantasy novel is one of the hottest works in its genre and in the literary world. The author, Tracy Dion, is an UNC alumna. She recently received the Coretta Scott King, John Steptoe, New Talent Author Award from the American Library Association's Book and Media Awards. And Tracy, who has worked in live theater, video game production, K-12 education, as well as university-level instruction, joins us right now on Southern Futures. Tracy, congratulations on your book success. Thank you. It's been a wild ride. Thank you for having me. Of course, and thank you for being here. Tracy, you bring King Arthur's Court to Chapel Hill and right onto the UNC campus in a really magical way with Legend Born. It's both a grand medieval experience and at the same time an authentic picture of Chapel Hill right now. So what prompted you to blend the imagery of Merlin and the medieval Knights of the Round Table with today's UNC campus, which is a setting, as we know, with its own history and power dynamics in the South? What, what prompted this? To answer that, I'll back up just a, like a little bit because it's, you know, it's interesting. King Arthur and the Round Table, I've been a fan, sort of had that you know, sense of, of those stories growing up, but it actually didn't start with, with Arthur. Where I started with this book was my own personal history. And I think like that's the thing that actually resonates long-term with Legendborn is that there's such a personal story in it. And it started with my own experience of losing my mother at a young age, not long after I graduated from UNC. And uh, then finding out that she had lost her own mother, like literally within three months of my age. And that that same pattern had gone back even a further generation with my grandmother. And as a science fiction fantasy writer, as a storyteller, I was like, what is that? This is, you know, an incredible pattern that's tragic in my matrilineal line. Where did it come from? What could explain it? Um, There is no real answer, but I'm a a writer, so I wrote one. And so the vision of a 16-year-old girl who needed to understand what happened to her mother at a different age in her life, but needed to go on a, a quest and a journey to find out what happened and that there was a magical explanation at the end of it is sort of where Legendborn started. But as an academic, as someone who's thinking more widely about the work that work does in the world, right? I was thinking about how unfortunate it is that my own genealogical study, if I were to embark on it, would probably come up against the wall of enslavement, the way that so many African Americans find when they go back a certain number of generations. And that this pattern that I'm looking back on for myself, I wouldn't necessarily even be able to to find um, all of the names involved if I kept going, if I wanted to see if it went back to my great, 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 great. And so this idea that, that some people's lives and losses are lost to history, in this case, sort of 
you know, through violence and, and oppression in other systems. And the other stories get to just live on for years and years and generations. It just sort of wrestled around in my mind as, as this, this strange way to live that we, <laughs> that there's millions of people who, for whom they can't go back. And, you know, then remembering in, you know, growing up in North Carolina, there would be coursework as, you know, elementary and middle school, like tell where your family came from and this assumption that there was a European origin. Um, and so students could come to class and be like, my family way back when, you know, they came from France or they came from Scotland. And for the black American students, and this was just this horrifying sort of traumatic school assignment that white instructors never really thought about how painful that was. And then I thought, well, then, you know, history and legends are interesting because the difference between a legend and a myth is that a legend typically has a kernel of truth or there's a, a historicity that we as a community have agreed to give to that story. And so possibly there's an or, or original Arthur out there 1500 years ago. And we have, as a global community, because different people have taken this story, decided to create, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of words, millions of words around this person that may or may not have existed and all of the people around him. And I just remember thinking, this is wild that there, you know, this possible person who may not have existed. Historians, medievalists generally are like, he wasn't there. There was a guy, maybe. But we have this whole body of work called Arthuriana, a canon around someone who may have not existed. And yet I'm asking a question that is maybe four generations back. And so that sort of dichotomy is really where I started coming up with, well, what if I talked about Arthur and brought that sort of weight of history into the discussion? Because I think it's important that we see that some things are given the weight of human attention and primacy of storytelling and other things get sort of lost and people just live with that walking around with their history being gone. And to me, to get to your question, that's how I got to UNC. Because as a student here, that is in the air, that, that question of whose stories do we memorialize and whose stories get lost. And even as a UNC student, I remember thinking, my experience of walking around campus and understanding that this campus was built by enslaved people is not the story you tell on the campus tour, but it is the experience of so many Black students. And we don't talk about what that feels like to be going into buildings that are named after people who would have owned me, certainly would not have been happy that I was there, certainly would have not been happy that I got paid to be there because I got a scholarship, you know, like all this stuff. And it's a weird sort of experience to be in space where history is called upon all the time and invoked um, as a source of pride, which is really so much true for UNC, first public school to graduate students, and with good reason. But then certain other histories just remain completely lost. And so that question that I had about personal history myself with Arthur was echoed in my experience of, of being at UNC. And I think it's the tension that's there even to this day, that there are two histories about this campus. And you bring that tension to this book. You really, I think, shake up the canon. It is that literary canon that sort of prioritizes, as you said, certain stories, elevates particular voices. But in your novel, your protagonist, Bree, she is a young African-American. Like you, she's a North Carolina native. She's struggling with loss, with uh, her mother's suspicious death and um, circumstances that are totally beyond her control. But she's also really powerful, and she comes to find that out Tell us about this character, Brie, and how she faces hurdles while rooted in this really very particular place, 
that you've set it in and that you've explained, right, the tensions in this place? I love this question because one of the things that I realize and that a lot of other Black authors who are writing genres or science fiction fantasy realize is that we have an additional level of what um, my friend Bethany C. Morrow calls world building about identity. So like blackness becomes a world building aspect that you have to weave into really contemporary stories as well. So if the black author is writing a black protagonist, but we understand in traditional publishing, our primary audience, no matter just by sheer numbers, are probably white readers particularly in my case, white young adult readers, then I'm like, well, okay, but blackness is a part of this character's experience. And I'm going to be weaving that in. And with that comes a set of skills and a set of experiences and tools that not every reader is going to be able to understand. And one of the skill sets, one of the toolboxes that I am most adamant about making sure people understand (laughs) um, is when you are a black person in a primarily white space, the, the survival skills that you have to come up with in order to persist and succeed and excel in that space, they're not nothing. We all have to sort of learn it on our own. Sometimes you get tips and tricks from elders or mentors or people who, you know, who can talk you through it. But often we have to just figure that out on the fly. And so Breeze, a lot of Bree's growth experience is figuring out what it means to be the only black girl in white space, particularly in an institutional space. It's not a skill set that I love that Black people have developed. I wouldn't say that. But I am proud of the navigational ability and the flexibility and really the effort it takes. That is a badge of a badge of certain sort of honor to be able to survive and excel in those spaces because it's not all, it's hostile territory in a lot of cases, whether it's somebody asking why you're there. Bree gets that. Why? How'd you get here? You know, was that, you know, was that a experience of um, affirmative action is a sort of assumption a couple of times. And I had that exact experience. I made sure that every instance of microaggression that Brie experiences in this book was drawn from my personal experience. I could talk to you about, you know, magical swords all day. I made those up. We could, we could have a whole hour talking about monsters, but I never wanted the microaggressions and the contemporary challenges that the character faced to be called fictional. So I made sure they were all from my life. And I definitely had someone at a country club that I was visiting with a friend who was like, well, how'd you get into UNC? It must have been, you know, it's almost word for word dialogue for, in the book. It must have been, you know, you know, need based. Right. And I was like, who asked that of a stranger? But he felt like he could. And I remember I just wanted to fight. <laughs> like, I was like, I would I am about to start screaming. But like, no, actually, I'm really smart. And so they paid me to be here is what I wanted to say. But you can't always say that. You have to weigh your response and decide, okay, is this the battle I want to fight today? Am I going to have to be here tomorrow? Am I going to have to be here for the next semester? Is this person in my working group? Like there's all these sort of variables that I think people have to to face. And so I wanted Brie to be able to grow and also experience those challenges as another layer of antagonism in the book. So novels often have three layers. There's internal antagonism, stuff that you... You put up for yourself that blocks you from what you want, external antagonist, antagonist, that's a villain, and then societal antagonist. And the societal sort of layer of antagonism that Brie is facing when she just wants to find out what happened to her mom. She's not there to fight, you know, for justice, for racial equality. That She's a 16-year-old girl who wants to know what happened to her mom. But as we experience often as people of color by POC, 
the societal antagonism will get in our way. I don't wake up trying to uh, advocate for my blackness. I just want to go to the grocery store. But then someone there is racist. And so then I have to deal with it. You know, like it's that experience of like, okay, I didn't wake up black Tracy today, but there are going to be people in my day who will remind me of it without my consent. And then I have to reposition and reorient myself to them. So that's really, that's a long-winded answer, but like I really wanted to bring that process to the fore and and show it as a, as a layer of antagonism. It's not just the bad guy who's rubbing his hands in the corner. It is everyday people. It's friends. It's authority figures, people who are who are poking at you and challenging your existence and making your actual mission in life, whether or not that's to do your job, take a class, you know, whatever, making that harder. One of the things about fantasy, our producer Mark Meyer noted this, is that fantasy and sci-fi have often used, have been used as vehicles to critique social issues. And you bring some of those issues to, to the forefront in your novel. But how does your novel reframe and spark truth-telling conversations? I think it does this in a few ways. But the, the, the way that first comes to mind with that question is that it challenges the genre. We're talking about science fiction and fantasy and what it's been used to do. You know, I will say I'm in a lineage of Black Black American, especially writers who've been using genre. Like I think about Octavia Butler and I think about Kindred, which she even called a, a grim fantasy, I believe, even though she's mostly a science fiction author, right? So I come from a lineage of people who are, who've done this, but I also think that Today's fantasy, the fantasy you're talking about, sort of the European-based Lord of the Rings and, you know, that type of thing, even Harry Potter, you know, from She Who Shall Not Be Named, you know, all that, you know, I think that what those stories do is often they show us biases, but via these like stand-in racist racisms. So you might have, you know, with, Tolkien's a little bit tricky because the orcs were just straight up racist, right? But I don't think he knew that. But there are other times when you'll see a fantasy book when it's like, well, you know, everything would be great except this group of purple skinned people are completely oppressed and it, they need to, you know, triumph. And so people will make claims and I don't think they're completely wrong, but I think there's an, there's an opportunity still there um, that fantasy and science fiction, when they have these examples of the people, you know, the magic users who are oppressed or the people from that land who use magic differently or whatever, they have blue eyes. And that means that they're, you know, they must be sacrificed. Like there's all sorts of storylines that come up in this genre and these genres where there's someone who's oppressed and then there has to be a triumph. When you look at, you know, the Hunger Games or any of those dystopian novels, people were divided up into groups and the groups were oppressed. My thing, and what I think Legendborn is trying to do is say like, okay, we have plenty of that for real now here. In the context in which you are reading this book, likely, I don't know where everyone's reading this book, someone's reading in space, maybe, I don't know. But in the context in which the average person is reading this book, there's plenty of real examples of real oppression that happen around them. And so if I was going to write a contemporary fantasy book, and even if I wasn't, I really felt like it was important it was important that we tell the truth about what oppression looks like. And there are people in my book who have magical abilities. The Merlins are a little bit second-class citizens. 
and their magical origin and their abilities make them sort of in a servant position, but they're not enslaved, but they are treated poorly. But there's also black people who are treated poorly because black people get treated poorly in a white supremacist society. So, so, you know, it was important for me to tell the whole truth. You know, we, we can't just, and particularly we can't, you know, just hope that people will infer what we mean around injustice if we, you know, paint that injustice on a different type of creature or person. We also need to wrestle with what that looks like today. And so it was very important to me at every turn that I challenged the subgenre of contemporary fantasy and said, like, you know, I, I want to be like 2.0, 3.0 version of what this is, which is let's actually talk about what's really happening. Science fiction fantasy does is always political. I mean, most things, everything's really political, but like science fiction and fantasy is notorious for being political and having viewpoints that are about freedom, resistance, exploration, all these things. But it can't, I, I can't, as a black person, as a reader, I can't erase the fact that there are true echoes of that in my life. And my readers, I know, the readers that I'm speaking to understand that too. So since we talk, we're talking about connecting with readers, you're a writer, but you're a reader as well. You love reading. So we are now in the reading corner for the podcast. And we want to know if there is a particular writer who inspires you, or we know you're a professed second generation fangirl. And so yeah. is there a work of fantasy or even another genre that you return to again and again and if, if you would read a short passage for us uh, who did you choose so i will tell you that the person that i choose is someone that i chose that is someone i discovered only last year and it's sadie smith it's a creative nonfiction piece i, I took a creative nonfiction course actually and this came up and i will tell you that i sort of forgot i think how moving creative nonfiction can be. And this essay is, a, is about joy. So let me just pull it up. And Tracy, while you're pulling that up, I might mention, and you met her briefly right before we started the podcast, Ivana, Ivana Devine is one of our students and that is her specialty. That's what she's studying now in the English department at UNC, creative nonfiction. That's her thing. CNF, as apparently people call it in the MFA world, I did not know. Um, but yeah, it is. Um, Zadie Smith is just incredible, of like voice. And I, the reason that I chose this is because it it was the essay that reminded me how working through oneself, one one's memories, is a way to tell a story about universal truth. And that's really what joy does. So I'll just read the beginning of it. I will tell you, whatever you think the essay is by the end of this excerpt, it's not. You got to keep reading. So go find it. But this was, I think it was originally um, in the New York Review of Books, uh, Joy by Zadie Smith. It might be useful to distinguish between pleasure and joy, but maybe everybody does this very easily all the time and only I am confused. A lot of people seem to feel that joy is only the most intense version of pleasure arrived at by the same road. You simply have to go a little further down the track. That has not been my experience. And if you asked me if I wanted more joyful experiences in my life, I wouldn't be at all sure I did, exactly, because it proves such a difficult emotion to manage. It's not at all obvious to me how we should make an accommodation between joy and the rest of our everyday lives. Perhaps the first thing to say is that I experience at least a little pleasure every day. I wonder if this is more than the usual amount. It was the same even in childhood when most people are miserable. 
I don't think this is because so many wonderful things happen to me, but rather that the small things go a long way. I seem to get more than the ordinary satisfaction out of food, for example. Any old food. An egg sandwich from one of those grimy food vans on Washington Square has a genuine power to turn my day around. Whatever is put in front of me, food-wise, will usually get a five-star review. You'd think that people would like to cook for, for or eat with me. In fact, I'm told it's boring. Where there is no discernment, there can be no awareness of expertise or gratitude for special effort. Don't say that was delicious, my husband warns. You say everything's delicious. But it was delicious. It drives him crazy. All day long, I can look forward to a popsicle. The persistent anxiety that fills the rest of my life is calmed for as long as I have the flavor of something good in my mouth. And though it's true that when the flavor is finished, the anxiety returns, we do not have so many reliable sources of pleasure in this life as to turn our nose up at one that is so readily available, especially here in America. A pineapple popsicle. Even the great anxiety of writing can be stilled for the eight minutes it takes to eat a pineapple popsicle. I love that, and I want to read the rest of it. So I will go look it up and read the rest of that joy by Sadie Smith. That'll do it for this episode of Southern Futures. The great news is our conversation with Tracy continues. It's presented in two parts. So please join us for our next episode to hear more from the fabulous Tracy Dion, author of fantasy novel Legend Born, published by Simon & Schuster. For executive producer Dr. Melinda Maynard-Lowry, producer and sound editor Mark Meyer, and associate producers Jackie Sizing and Ivana Devine, I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion. Southern Futures is a podcast powered by the Southern Futures Initiative, a collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Southern Futures, reimagine the American South.